You are now listening to the April 9th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Nearer to My God to Thee, the sermon, and equipping the saints. First, let's begin with Nearer My God to Thee. From Near My God to Thee, where we look into the background of a hymn and reflect upon its meaning in a deeper way. Many people mistakenly believe that the greatest human strength is our own willpower. They say anything is possible if you believe and emphasize the power of being positive. However, if we look around, we will soon realize that there are many aspects of life that are completely out of our control. For example, the passing of time, life and death, changes in weather, the movement of the sun, moon, and stars. While there are many things in life we can influence by our own power, most of life is simply out of our control. Most of them are forces of nature that are under God's control. Humans realize how insignificant they are when they face a great natural disaster. Also, when we stand before the splendor of nature, we realize how great and amazing our God the Creator is. What do we confess when we experience and believe Almighty God the Creator who made the universe and operates it without a single mistake? I believe we will naturally sing praises of confessing God's greatness. There are many hymns that praise God's greatness. If I asked you to choose among those, a hymn that was your favorite, which one would you choose? Many songs may come to mind, but I believe there's a hymn we can all agree on. It's a hymn called How Great Thou Art. I'm sure many of you thought of this hymn. Today we'll share the hymn How Great Thou Art, written by Pastor Carl Gustav Boberg. First, let's listen to the hymn for a moment. O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed then sings my soul my savior god to thee how great thou art how sings my soul, my Savior God to Thee. How great Thou art, how great Thou 
Here is the first verse. O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made. I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. Carl Gustav Boberg was born in 1859 in Sweden as a son of a carpenter who built boats. He accepted Jesus as Savior when he was 19 years old and began theological studies. Afterwards, he worked in ministry for a long time as an editor for a weekly Christian newspaper. He also worked as a senator of Sweden for 20 years. When and how did he end up writing the hymnal poem called How Great Thou Art? We'll find out through a drama. In 1865, Carl was studying theology. One day, he attended worship service in Kronoback, Sweden. Afterwards, he was walking with his friend to a house in Monsteras. Today's worship service was really great. Yes, it was. I was able to meditate deeply upon God the Creator and give thanks to Him. I'm sure we were both greatly impressed about the scriptures saying that God knows each of the names of the countless stars and calls them by name. Since God knows the name of each of the numerous stars, He likewise knows each of us and calls us by name. Carl and his friends talked about the sermon and headed home. Suddenly they saw lightning and dark clouds ahead coming towards them from the far horizon. John, look over there. The dark clouds are rolling and there's even lightning in there. Wow, it's true. It feels frightening to see such huge clouds rolling. Yes, when Jesus returns on a cloud, will it look like that? It's an amazing sight. It seems like the clouds are going to swallow us. Let's run home before the rain comes. Carl and John began running to avoid the rain, but the dark clouds covered them in an instant. Carl and his friend entered into the dark cloud which contained lightning. Above them, the flashing lightning came down from heaven. The loud sound of thunder resounded all over the land. The wind was blowing from one direction, and as it crossed them, it violently shook everything. Then the heavy rain began to pour. However, even in the midst of the stormy rain cloud, Carl and his friend were safe. The rain washed everything clean, then began to seize. The darkened sky passed and the bright sunshine between the clouds shone upon Carl and his friend. Peace came over the calm sky and a beautiful rainbow appeared. Wow, wasn't that an amazing storm? Yes, you're right. Truthfully, I was a bit frightened. I thought we were going to get struck by lightning. Ah, uh, Carl, look over there. It's a rainbow. Huh? Wow, what a beautiful rainbow. Carl returned home and deeply meditated upon the grandeur of nature he experienced. He also thought about how small he was in the midst of the awesome force of nature. It was really a magnificent sight. Humans are powerless before the great creation made by the Lord. I am but a small person. 
Lord, today I deeply realized how great you are. Lord, you are truly the sole creator who made this world. That day, Carl thought of Psalm chapter 8, verse 1 that says, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. And wrote the poem, How Great Thou Art. His poem was first printed in 1865 in a Christian newspaper. Two years later, in 1888, a church in Sweden added a Swedish folk song melody to the poem and began singing it as a hymn. Later on, this hymn was translated into many different languages. An English missionary named Stuart Hine, who was in Ukraine, saw this poem translated in Russian. He translated verses 1-3 in English. In 1949, he added a fourth verse, and it became the hymn we know. Later on, a composer named Eric Edgren arranged the melody to the current one, and the hymn was sung among many more Christians. Carl wrote about 60 more hymnal poems and praised God all his life. Those who experience God's glory will praise Him. His greatness and glory will be praised forever. I hope we will praise Him forever. We'll end near my God to Thee.
And when I think that God, His Son not sparing, sent Him to die, I scarce can take it in that on a cross my burdens gladly bearing, He bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to Thee, how great Thou art, how great Thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to Thee, how great Thou art, how great Thou Shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home. What joy shall fill my heart? Then I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim, My God, how great Thou art! Then sings my soul. Savior God to Thee, how great Thou art, how great Thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to Thee, how great Thou art, how great Thou art, how great Thou Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Bill Miter of Arizona Community Church. Today's topic is, Can Christians Be Friends with the World? I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Bill. We'll be in John chapter 15, beginning in verse 18. Church, hear the word of God this morning. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Amen and amen, church. Again, I present to you the word of God today. Church, question, how much did the world hate Jesus? Enough to arrest him, falsely accuse him, mock him, torture him, and kill him by nailing him to a cross where he would slowly suffocate. That's how much they hated him. And they did this. Do you know why they did this? 
Here's why they did it. Precisely because there was no common ground that they could find to stand upon with Jesus. Because Jesus wouldn't budge. Jesus spoke the truth. Jesus is the truth. John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. The one who is truth proclaimed the truth and he was not willing to budge. They wanted, the Sadducees would have done anything for, to find common ground on which to stand. There was no common ground. Jesus told them to come and follow him on the narrow road. But there is no other road than the narrow road and either you're on it or you're not. To put it another way, folks, very simple. There is God's way and there's the wrong way. Do I hear an amen? If we don't hold this idea that there's God's way and the wrong way, specifically with regard to marriage and gender and sexual ethics, if we don't, we will spend our days seeking to accomplish the impossible. We will spend our days seeking to find a common ground with the world. And when we're trying to find a common ground with the world, we're seeking to do that which is impossible. And it's precisely when you are seeking to accomplish the impossible that you are going to be tempted to compromise all that is meaningful. Right? When are you going to be most tempted to compromise? It's when you're seeking to accomplish that which is impossible. We as the church have to recognize what is impossible. What is impossible is taking a Christian worldview and melding it in any way with, a, with man's worldview or a philosophical worldview that comes from this world. It's impossible. It is impossible. Now, none of this should come as a surprise to us. It really shouldn't to those of us who are believers. Why? Because Jesus left absolutely no doubt as to what he was calling us to when we became his disciples. He, wasn't, he, he was calling us to follow him on that narrow road in the most radical of ways. Matthew 16 says this, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, you want to follow me? Here's what it means if you want to follow me on this narrow road. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In other words, it could very well cost you your life to follow me. This is how much the world is going to hate you when you follow me. That is how difficult it is to be on the narrow road. It may cost you your life. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We have nothing in common with those who aren't saved. And that's why I've said, I've said it before. Remember, every building you enter, every threshold you cross, every conversation you enter, that place, that conversation is now sanctified by your presence because a man or woman of God has now entered the building. A man or woman of God has now just entered a building full of people who are spiritually estranged from God, spiritually dead in their trespasses and sins. And you are a believer. And so that's why I said, do not ever lose sight of who you are. You are a chosen people set apart by God from the foundation of the world to serve him in this generation. Just how set apart from the world are we to be? The Bible says this, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness, you with lawlessness, the world? Or what fellowship has light, you with darkness, the world? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God, you with idols, the world? For we are the temple of the living God. And God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And God says this, therefore, go out from their midst. Come out from them and separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord God Almighty. Do you want to know how different you are from the people around you? This different. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, 
But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh, that is unbelievers, is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Do you understand those in your family and those in the world who are unbelievers? They cannot. It's not like they they may go, yeah, I'm cool with God. I'm cool with God. They're not. They're living in a hostile. If they will not bow the knee to Christ, they're not on good terms with God. If they were truly on good terms with God, if they were truly okay with the God of the Bible, they would submit themselves on that spot in the moment to the Son of God. But the fact that they will not bow the knee to Christ means that they are actually hostile to God. The unbeliever may have a nice face and put on a good appearance and and may even come to church and do some religious things, but if that person rejects the Son of God, they also reject the Father who sent him. They are hostile to God. They do not submit to God's law. They cannot. Do you understand that the non-believer cannot submit to God's law? Second Corinthians says this, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God. They are folly to him. See, you delight in the law of the Lord, right? Just as David did in the Psalms, right? I delight in the law of the Lord. I will meditate day and night. And then like a tree firmly planted, I will prosper in my time. That's Psalm chapter one. I used to sing it all the time. I will delight in the law of the Lord. I will meditate day and night. And then like a tree firmly planted, I will prosper in my time. We used to sing that in InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Why do you delight in the law of the Lord? Because you've been saved. Your heart has been transformed. You are a new creation. The unbeliever in your family, at your place of work or whatever, they may seem like, oh, I'm cool with God. Folks, they do not understand what you understand. The spiritual truth that you cherish in your heart and that you love They're hostile towards it. They hate it. They can't submit to it. They can't understand it. And that's why they can't understand you or me. And yet, somewhere in the back of our minds, my mind, I think, well, maybe I can find a way to be friends with you. Maybe I can find a way to take my worldview and meld it with your worldview, and we'll find some common ground to stand on. Folks, that common ground does not exist. The narrow road is narrow for a reason. The natural person does not accept the things from the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. But you and I, what do we have? We have the mind of Christ. It's like trying to take the mind of Christ and making it, trying to find a common ground with those that really are from below, that have the mind of the world, the mind of the flesh, the mind of the devil. The late, great R.C. Sproul, one of my heroes in the faith, said this, the greatest weakness in the church today is that the servants of God keep looking over their shoulder for the approval of men. (laughs) By the way, just as soon as I've said this before, and I'll say it again, just remember the minute that the church or we as believers compromise and we go, the world will say, just budge a little bit, move the line here. Let's just redefine marriage to this. And we go, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll concede that. Just as soon as we move to this line, guess what they're going to do? They're going to move it again. And they're going to say, come here. And that line will never stop being moved. Concede all you want, you'll never get to the end. You'll never get to the end because they will keep moving it. Folks, spiritual maturity is when the church says, we don't care what the world thinks about us. We are going to live to please God, and that's all that matters. We are going to live to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. We don't care what you think about us. It is juvenile. It is juvenile when we are concerned that the world would somehow find us acceptable or pleasing or are happy with us. Folks, it's impossible. If they hated our master, what are they going to do to you and me? If they disrespected the son of God, what are they going to do with you and me? Of course, they're going to hate us. 
The greatest weakness in the church today is that the servants of God keep looking over their shoulder for the approval of men. Wow. That's part of this lesson is that we as the church, the lesson, folks, we have to learn is we cannot be friends with the world in any way, shape, or form. Do not feel guilty because that exists. I think many of us feel guilty because in our families, we're standing strong and our family doesn't like us. And somehow we feel guilty for that. Don't feel guilty. Don't feel guilty for honoring God in your family or at your place of work. That is what you and I have been called to do. Now, what I'm about to say may sound a little bit counterintuitive, but listen carefully because what the church has been doing over the last 20 years, 30 years, is we've been looking for common ground. But no one understand this. The church will be most effective not when it seeks to find common ground, but rather when we boldly stand our ground. I'm telling you, how is it that Jesus took 12 men and literally turned the Roman Empire on its head in one generation. He took the greatest world empire and turned it on its head in one generation. Did he do it by compromising? No, just the opposite. He was unwilling to budge, and they crucified him for it. Had he just budged a little bit and found some common ground, he would not have been crucified. That first generation turned the Roman Empire on its head in a single generation because they were unwilling to budge. Folks, what makes, we, here we are in the 21st century and somehow we think, well, we'll be the one generation that figures out some sort of common ground with marriage or gender or human sexuality. No, 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 no. The church needs to hold its ground. But what is true for the church collectively is true for each of us individually. If we want these few years that we have on this planet to count we must understand early and revisit often the truth that it is impossible for us as believers, individual believers, to be friends with the world. Don't feel guilty if the world hates you. Don't feel guilty if your family hates you. Don't feel guilty if those at work hate you. That is to be expected. They hated our master as well. This is the truth that Christ came to bring. Now, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. As Christians, we can find common interests with non-believers, sports, hobbies, general interest type things, temporal things that we can build bridges and have relationship with non-believers, but there is literally no scenario in which a believer can find common ground when it comes to melding a truly biblical worldview with any other type of man-centered worldview or philosophical system. Sadly, we have seen church after church and entire denominations trying to find common ground with the people of this world over the past 30 years. And denominations have fallen before our very eyes. Strong, once great, proud denominations that preach the truth are now laid waste, laid to waste. Many of these churches have sought to find common ground in the areas of marriage, gender, and sexual ethics. I preached this sermon, obviously, last night at our Saturday night service, and I was talking to somebody over, right over here, and he said to me, because he was in full agreement, but he just said, it's kind of like, where are all the adults? And he was so right. Where are the adults? And by adults, I mean, where are the spiritually mature men and women who are going to say, enough is enough of this nonsense, right? Do you know who the biggest, when the church flirts with being friends with the world, do you know who pays the price for it? Our children. Our children. Our children are growing up in a generation where there is nothing but confusion on some of the most important issues, gender, marriage, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, my son, sophomore at ASU in the aeronautical engineering program, he had to take one credit 
PE class. He just told me yesterday. And he signs up for the class. He wanted to play basketball, but all the good ones were taken. So he had to take like stretching. And so he signed up for his stretching. <laughs> Proud of you, son. Proud of you. <laughs> but the very first question they, he got in the class and the lady walked in and said, what are your preferred pronouns? That's the world that we're living in. That is the world that we're living in. Now, he's a, he's a man. He's a Christian. He's, he's solid. It's our young ones that I'm worried about. They're growing up with absolute, utter confusion about gender and sexuality and marriage. It's just, it breaks my heart. But there is a warning. Woe to them who causes one of these little ones to stumble. It would be better for a millstone to be tied around their neck, to be thrown into the sea, than cause one of them to fall. This generation of people that are doing this better understand what is at stake. More on that in a second. Folks, there is God's view of marriage. There is God's view of gender. There is God's view of family. There is God's view of purity. And then there is man's view. That is it. Period. End of sentence. Period. End of sentence. What is God's view of purity? Just in case the church has lost this, let me just reiterate this for all of us. Because I'm burdened that the church has lost a sense of what is pure, what purity means, because there are too many Christians living together. There are too many Christians doing things that are inappropriate. Folks, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. I tell you, if you even think it, you are guilty of adultery. We are to be pure in our minds, let alone our actions. All of our actions should be pure, but it should go to what we're thinking behind closed doors when no one is looking, that we're pure in mind. And despite this, as I already stated, believers, myself included, are continually tempted to think if we just keep trying, we'll be the one generation to figure out that common ground that none of our other previous generations of believers found. Charles Spurgeon said this, I fear that sometimes in our endeavors to be sweet in disposition, we have not been strong in principle. In trying to be courteous, listen to this, we have also been traitorous. Charles Spurgeon, the greatest, he's known in the Prince of Preachers. He preached in the 1800s in England. He was the greatest preacher at the time, perhaps one of the greatest preachers in the history of the church. He was what was known, he was part of, he wrote uh, in his newsletter anonymously about what he called the downgrade controversy. It was called the downgrade controversy. And what he saw is liberalism and liberal ideas getting into the church already. It was specifically the Anglican church. But he saw it happening, and he said, we're, the church is on a downgrade. It's on a slippery slope, if you will. And if we don't correct it, we're going to keep going down. It's, it was called the downgrade controversy. But Spurgeon headed this and said, the church is in trouble. We cannot compromise with the world. We can't let, not only, listen to where the church is today, folks. The, the church is not only seeking to compromise with the world. We've invited the world into the church to tell us how to do church. No, thanks. No thanks. I'm not going to let somebody who's spiritually dead, doesn't understand spiritual truth, cannot submit to the things of God and is hostile to God, tell me what it is to mean to worship the one true God. Those of us that have the mind of Christ. But that's exactly what we've done. We have invited the church into the world and now we take our cues from the world telling us what to do. No thank you. As much as you and I may long for the people of this world to love and accept us, folks, the only way that is going to happen is if we start making concessions. But know and understand this. Listen very carefully. Making concessions will never lead to common ground. You do understand this, right? Concessions will only lead you to compromised ground. You might think, I'm standing on common ground with this non-believer. You're not. You're standing on compromised ground. And they probably didn't compromise. You did. The only way you didn't compromise is if they came believers and joined you on the narrow road. 
If you're on that ground, then you're on common ground. But any other ground is not common ground. It is compromised ground. We think of the greats, the great men and women throughout the Bible who stood their ground in their generation. We think of um, Joshua who told his generation, choose this day whom you'll serve. I think of Elijah. Elijah came to mind. Remember Elijah did prophet, he did battle with the prophets of Baal in his generation. And uh, listen to what he says. This is what Elijah says to the generation of Israelites in his generation. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go on limping between two opinions? What is wrong with you people? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And listen to this. And the people did not answer him. I think because they were absolutely convicted. A true prophet stood before them and said, you are limping between two decisions. You have no courage, no conviction to stand on what you know to be true. If you think for a moment that Baal has anything for you, then follow him. But if you know that God is true and his way is true, then get 100% on board. 100% on board. Follow God. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow him. It is a narrow road and called the narrow road for a reason. Don't be ashamed to be on that road. Be courageous when you're on that road. It might feel lonely when you're on that road, and it is. There are times when it'll feel like you are the only one walking that road. Happened to Elijah. Remember? He said, God, I'm the only one left. And what did God say? You're not. You may feel alone in this moment, but know that there's others with you, 7,000 other prophets that are with you. No one understand this. There's going to feel, there are going to be times you're on that narrow road holding your own and it's going to feel like you're there alone. You're not. There are 3,000 other churches. Did I tell you this this morning? We signed up with, there's 3,000 other churches signed. I signed the pledge for our church this week, but there's 3,000 other churches across North America and Canada that are preaching similar messages today. Amen? That's good news. We're not alone. There are faithful brothers and sisters holding their own in other parts of this world. In Canada, they're going to jail for it. We need to do what Elijah did in his generation, stand our ground being unwilling to compromise. As you well know, the, the highest virtue in our culture today is this, tolerance. It is the grandest of all virtues. And not just any type of tolerance, but a complete unbridled tolerance of everyone and everything despite anything. And while we as Christians should certainly seek to be tolerant and grace-filled people where we can, we always want to be gracious and patient and kind and loving. There is a point and a very clear point at that where we cannot and will not be tolerant. Believe it or not, there is a type of tolerance that even God hates. And by the way, there is a type of tolerance that God hates specifically with regard to sexual sins. Shall I prove it to you? Church, hear the word of God. But I have this against you, that you say it with me tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess is in teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Now listen to this. Remember how I told you? Jesus says, woe to those who cause these little ones to stumble. Better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into sea than to, cause, to, to do this. The people that are causing our little ones to stumble in this generation, they... they Need, the reason they're doing it is they do not fear the Lord, but they don't fear the Lord because the church isn't preaching judgment. But the Bible certainly preaches it. Shall I prove it to you? Verse 22, verse 22. Behold, I will throw her on a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works and I will strike her children dead. You go, people go, well, the God of the New Testament's loving and kind. Yes, he is but he's a God of wrath. 
And it's a terrible thing. It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Amen? In our generation, these people that are doing this need to be told this because they are going to be held accountable. If you love these people that are stumbling and causing others to stumble in this way, we shouldn't, I mean, we're not doing this going, oh, look at how bad you are and look at how great we are. But for the grace of God, we would be with you. We love you enough to tell you, you are headed towards the worst type of judgment. Escape it while you can. Today is the day of salvation. Come to Christ, bow the knees, enter the narrow gate and walk the narrow road. If you've walked the narrow road, you know the beauty of walking the narrow road, isn't it? There's nothing like, there's so much joy in being obedient to the Lord. There's so much joy in being obedient to the Lord. Where was I? Um, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the, heart, the mind and the heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. Just how seriously does God take this issue of believers seeking to be friends with the world? Serious enough for James to write this. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Sadly, while churches who in the name of tolerance have compromised with the world, specifically regarding marriage, gender, and sexual ethics, they may have endeared themselves to the world, but they have estranged themselves from God in the worst kind of way. And of this you can be certain, they will be held accountable. Folks, you will not because you are faithful. This church is faithful. We escaped that. Praise God. So where does this leave us? I have one overriding thought that I'd like to end this sermon with today, and here it is. As believers individually and the church collectively, here it is, we have to move past this crazy notion that being friends with the world is even a remote possibility. Folks, it is not even a remote possibility. It should not be on our radar. It should not cross our minds because it is an impossibility. Folks, when you try to accomplish the impossible, that is when you are going to sacrifice and compromise all that is meaningful. As believers, we must fix our gaze straight ahead on that narrow road and with courage and conviction, live the holy lives that God has called us to, be, to live, not feeling guilty for a moment for those that hate us. They may try to blame us. Fine, go ahead. But you're blaming us for living a holy life? If that's the judgment that I'm going to face, so be it. I'd rather face that judgment than stand before the living God on that day having compromised. Amen? If the people of this world do not understand our desire to please God, oh well. I'm not a, I'm not a teenager anymore. I'm not a juvenile anymore. I don't need your approval to have a good day. <laughs> the only thing I need to do to have a good day is please my God. You as well. If the people of this world are offended by the lives we are leading or the things we are teaching or preaching, oh well. As a matter of fact, folks, it's 100% certain they will. Why? Because Peter said as much. Listen to this passage. And notice how it's loaded with everything regarding sexuality. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passion, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Now listen to this. With respect to these they, that is the world, are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But notice what it says, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. This generation who, are, who is undertaking this sexual, not even revolution, it's a sexual insurrection, they need to be warned. <laughs> Judgment is coming and it's going to be severe. It's going to be severe. But I want you to look at what verse four says. With respect to these things, they're going to think it's strange. They're going to be surprised when you and I don't partake in their flood of debauchery. You don't think marriage can be with whoever you want, whenever you want? No, we don't. You don't think a person can identify with whoever they want to be, whenever they want to be? No, we don't. 
And when we do that, we are going to be a strange oddity, a bizarre abnormality, a freakish curiosity. Remember when you used to go to, uh, the, the, not the circus, but they'd come into town with the rides and carnivals. And the carnivals always had like that one tent where you could see the cow with six legs. You know, come and see these freakishly weird things. That's you and me to the world for what we hold. We are, a, we are a strange oddity, a bizarre abnormality, a freakish curiosity because of our unwillingness to take, partake in the world's debauchery. If we can accept that now, folks, it will protect us from compromise later. What type of attitude should we have as believers with regard to the lives that we have left? Jesus said it this way. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The point is simple. Folks, we are plowing forward with a single focus. We are not looking back at the life we have left, nor are we looking side to the, side to the world around us. We are focused on what we know to be true, proclaiming what we know to be true. We know unmistakably who God has called us to be and the lives that he has called us to live. We are to be a holy people set apart in this generation, a kingdom of priests for God in this generation. And I'm going to say it again. I've said it a thousand times. Your feet were set in this generation for a reason. And I do think that this generation will go down as one of the most difficult generations to have lived in. You and I are living with tremendous pressure, distractions, and other things that other generations could not have even fathomed about, fathomed. Other generations could not have fathomed of planes that could fly you to the other side of the world in less than 24 hours, or information that could be flooded to you 24 hours a day, nonstop. That world didn't exist where there was electricity and other things. None of that existed for them. But this generation, which is so burdened with all of these things, who has God put in this generation? You, you're here for a reason. Listen. Instead of looking for common ground, let's firmly plant our feet on the solid ground where we know the footing is sure and the foundation is strong. I want to close with this thought. Listen, there is nothing courageous whatsoever about being friends with the world. Many churches, and you might even know many believers who are going to say, well, in the name of love and tolerance, I'm going to compromise because I, I really love these people over here. So I'm going to compromise in order to get them. That is not the loving thing to do, nor it is the courageous thing to do. The courageous thing to do is not to seek to find common ground. The courageous thing to do is call non-believers to get on the solid ground. Amen? And folks, there is only one solid ground. That is the word of God. It is inerrant. It is sufficient. Everything you need to know in this life for a life that pleases God unto salvation is found in this book. Folks, don't compromise for a minute. You are here for a reason. We are here for a reason. This church, with your support, is going to hold the line in the days and weeks ahead. Amen? It may cost us, but we're going to hold the line. We're going to hold the line with the other faithful churches in North America and Canada that are doing it. And like I said, if I end up in jail... I hope you're in the cell next to me. I really do. Because we're going to sing hymns and glorify God there together. Amen? Amen. I finished with this question. Do you see the impossibility and utter futility of believers seeking friendship with the world? Let me pray. Well, Father in heaven, we come before you. And God, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Canada who are being faithful to your word and proclaiming what is true with regard to marriage and gender and sexual uh, ethics. God, make them bold, make them courageous. And God, some of them are already in jail. Some of them are going to go to jail. God, we pray for them, pray for their families. We pray for the churches that have joined together this weekend across this country and in Canada. Strengthen your saints, strengthen these churches. And God, we pray for the churches that have lost their way, that you'd bring them back, the denominations that have lost their way. God, let them be convicted and come back to the truth. 
Let them come back to the truth. God, may your church rise up in this generation. God, it is not a lost generation as long as you're involved. If you're involved, Lord God, anything is possible. So Father, we love you. We thank you and encourage we leave now. And in Christ's name we pray, amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you right here. Yeah.
The following program is called Equipping the Saints, provided by ETS Ministry. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundsted, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall us, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious, compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better than life. Take my life, he's saying. Jonah's saying, just kill me. He's having a supreme pity party. This is the conclusion of his selfishly angry prayer. Just kill me. Why? You saved the Ninevites. See how crazy that is? It's warped. It's messed up. You did good, so kill me. I can't take it. I'm angry. We need to recognize when you harbor anger, you're not going to see things right. You're going to give Satan a place and see things all messed up. You're going to give evil, satanic thoughts a place in your mind. This is a satanic thought, not a godly thought. Now, some of you might say, well, wait a second. What about Elijah cried out wishing to die in 1 Kings 19.4? And indeed, many have noted the portion of this prayer is similar. But I need to make it clear that the circumstances are totally different. Elijah was discouraged under the juniper tree based on the fact that Israel had apostatized and he had Ahab and Jezebel and their great apostasy. He was discouraged because of their sin. He wasn't angry. Jonah's situation was totally different. He was angry that God saved the Ninevites. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better than life. Now, we don't need to be rocket scientists or psychiatrists to see that Jonah is depressed. Take my life from me. These are dangerous things to be pondering in your heart. They are satanic things. Now, even the world observes rightly that anger and depression always coexist together, although they would not agree in the cause being sin and sinful, stinking thinking. Listen to what the Suicide and Mental Health Association International says. Depression and anger are always two sides of the same coin. They are behaviors most used by survivors to cope with their damaged lives. When you see depression, you can assume anger lies buried beneath the despair, though it may not be obvious. Anger is always a companion of feelings of helplessness and hopelessness. When one is depressed, all seems hopeless and nothing seems worth doing. One asks, why continue living? That's from the world. They see that, but now they do not go forward at that point and show the cause, as God does in his word, to be wrong thinking concerning the nature of God and what is happening to us. Jonah's in a deep depression. Kill me, Lord. I don't want to live anymore. I don't want to go on. At its core is ungodly anger based on a warped view of God. Believers, stop going to the doctor to get antidepressants. Humbly get into the Word of God, as we will see. Now, I'm not telling you that if you're on antidepressants to go stop immediately, talk to your doctor, and then go through a process and get off. But if your doctor says, take this, this will help you in your depression, take this instead. You need to see what you're not believing concerning what God has said. We're going to see God go right to the heart of this with Jonah, and I believe with us. Repent of your stinking thinking. Renew your mind. 
so that you prove what God's will is, not what Satan's desire is, which is to destroy you through your own actions. Instead of praising God for his wonderful salvation of the Ninevites based on his glorious character of grace, compassion, mercy, slowness to anger, abounding in love and kindness, Jonah's angry and he's depressed. And maybe you're angry and depressed as evidenced by your lack of praise for who God is. You need to repent if this is the case. Now we're all tempted. We're all tempted to be angry. We're all tempted to fall on this. And we need to be warned by the words that we don't get to this point. But if you're at this point, you need to confess. You need to humbly repent of your view of God. Now, one thing I need to clarify, I'm not talking about being discouraged because of your own sin, which you've repented of, or others in the church. It's discouraging when we fail. It's discouraging when others fail. Elijah was discouraged. In the New Testament, it says that God is the God who comforts the depressed. Paul said the word depressed means downcast. It's not what he's talking about. Paul was not angry at God and therefore was downcast. He was downcast because of the state of what was happening. Because he loved the church so much. He said, who is led into sin without my intense concern? He wasn't angry. But Jonah's angry. And there are always consequences to sin. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, he will rape. And God is so good. He doesn't want us to go down that path. He could have zapped Jonah here, but he didn't. And he's doing it for our benefit too, so that we won't go down that path. He is a good God, a compassionate God, a gracious God. He doesn't want you to go this way. He loves you. Maybe some of you are looking at your circumstances, whatever it is, finances, people, jobs, life, whatever it is. And you're saying in your heart of hearts, death is better than life. You may not be running out thinking of killing yourself, but in your heart of hearts, you're saying, you know what? It would be better just to be out of here. Let me remind you of the satanic danger of anger as revealed in Scripture. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. God commands you to do this. And do not give the devil an opportunity. You want Satan to have a place in your life? Stay irritated. You want the enemy of your soul to have a place in your thinking? Do you want to think like Satan? You give Satan a place if you stay angry. So many believers are in disobedience to this command and give our arch enemy a place, and their thinking is all messed up. But God is going to go to the heart of the problem here. He's going to skip all the counseling sessions and go right to it. Before I share that, I want to share some passages on anger. First of all, the blessing of being slow to anger. I'll mention these first. Proverbs 14:29. He who is slow to anger has great understanding. He understands. But he who is quick temper exhibits folly. He's a fool. Proverbs 15:18. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife. If you got a hot temper, there's all sorts of conflicts around you. Because it's all about your desires. Jonah's desire, Nineveh, not be saved. Didn't happen, he's mad. But the slow to anger pacifies contention. Proverbs 16.32, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. A man's discretion makes him slow to anger. Discretion, he understands. He's discerning. That's why he's slow to anger. In the context, Proverbs of the fear of the Lord... Proverbs 29.8, scorners set a city aflame, but wise men turn from anger. 
The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the knowledge of the Holy One. Proverbs 19.19, a man of great anger shall bear the penalty, for if you rescue him, you will only have to do it again. Proverbs 22.24-25, do not associate with a man given to anger, or go with a hot-tempered man, lest you learn his ways and find a snare for yourself. Proverbs 29.22, an angry man stirs up strife, and a hot-tempered man abounds in transgression. Somebody's got a hot temper. They're saying, oh, the circumstances, this is why I get angry. But you look there in that life and there's transgression everywhere. Whatever they say. Proverbs 30, 33, for the churning of milk produces butter and the pressing of the nose forth blood, but the churning of anger produces strife. Ecclesiastes 7, 9, do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. You may want to examine yourself, too. Jonah was saved, but you may want to examine yourself if you're always angry. See if you're in the faith. We'll talk about that later. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousies, outbursts of anger. But God says because of Christ, we can choose to abide in Christ. We can put off these things. We are no longer captives to sin. I don't have to offer myself to anger anymore. I can offer myself to Christ who saved me. Colossians 3.8, but now you also put them aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech. And don't lie to one another. Don't live a lie by being angry. Believer, are you depressed? There's an extremely high likelihood that underneath your depression is anger that you allowed the sun to go down on. And Satan has a place in your mind and your thoughts are evil. Jonah's thoughts were evil. He saved, but they were evil. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better than life. Jonah should have been saying this instead. It was incredibly difficult for me to go in the midst of those ungodly pagans, Lord, those wicked pagans. But I praise Thee that You changed their hearts and they have repented because You are a gracious, merciful God. It has been awfully difficult, Lord God, but I see what You're doing. It is good and I praise You for it. But Jonah says, take my life instead. So what does God do at this point? Does God recommend... Years of counseling. God is very gracious to us. And he gets right to the point. Verse 4. And the Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? And this phrase can be translated this way, and I prefer it this way, although both convey the same thought. It could literally be said, Is doing good angering you? What did God do? He did good. Is my good that I did at Nineveh angering you, Jonah? To Jonah, it was evil. And that's why it's so important to see verse 1. It was evil to Jonah. And God says right away, it's the core of his anger and the core of his issue, which is a warped view of God, is doing good angering you. Is my doing good to the Ninevites angering you? God flat out addresses Jonah's error. Just in one statement. And he has to keep going because Jonah doesn't respond. But I believe as we will see the testament that Jonah ultimately did respond is that we have this book. Verse 1, but it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. It was evil to Jonah, not good. That's the bottom line of all your anger. 
you're seeing things as bad. You're seeing the difficulty in your finances as bad. You're seeing the difficulty, or maybe God's discipline. Maybe you did blow it, and you're being disciplined. But you're seeing it as bad rather than good. Maybe you didn't blow it, and you're suffering. And you're seeing it as bad rather than good. God saves us. He justifies us. He declares us righteous. Then He sanctifies us. He sets us apart from sin. That's part of salvation. We have been saved. We are being saved. And we will be saved. And we are taking an element of salvation, God's loving kindness and mercy towards us, and we're saying, not good. And we're angry. And God says, is doing good angering you? It's good. Wonderful passages. The Lord is good. He turns evil to good. Joseph knew this as he was treated very bad. He could have been so angry at Potiphar. He could have been so angry at his brothers. He could have been so angry at his dad for showing favoritism and making things bad for him. He could have been so angry at all kinds of stuff. For the guy who said, I'm going to tell the Pharaoh, he didn't tell him anything, stayed in jail longer. Genesis 50, 20, as for you, you meant it for evil. Okay, you that was your motive. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. He who is slow to anger has a great understanding. Psalm 119.66, teach me good discernment and knowledge, for I believe in thy commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep thy word. Thou art good and doest good. Teach me thy statutes. The arrogant have forged a lie against me with all my heart. I will believe thy precepts. Their heart is covered with fat, but I delight in thy law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. That's the opposite of Jonah. It was good that I was afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. Familiar passage, hopefully it makes more sense when we share it today, Romans 8.28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And here's what he's doing in that good. For whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. All the bad you think is bad is actually good. If you love the Lord. Let me ask you this. Are you an angry person? Is God's doing good angering you? Your answer to this question is crucial. So then we've seen the Lord confronts Jonah's twisted perception with his word. Directly the problem. You think it's evil, Jonah? Is my good, is my doing good angering you? And the answer is what? Yes. He saw it as evil and he's angry, but it's actually good. It's actually good. So how can we avoid the deadly consequences of anger? First of all, recognize the angry man or woman's core view of God is warped by evil, selfish thinking. It's stinking thinking. It doesn't line up in the Word of God. Seeing things wrongly, not as what God's Word would say. Seeing your circumstances as evil rather than good. Secondly, we need to recognize there's deadly consequences. And lastly, we need to let God's Word address our thinking and then repent. Let God's word address what's wrong with your thinking. Don't sit there and converse all about this situation and that situation. Get into the word of God and renew your mind with what he says concerning everything he is doing. At the core of the heart of anger is an idolatrous, selfish heart 
that thinks our understanding is better than God's. That we know what is best, that we know what is good, and that God doesn't. That's a warped view, and we need to confess that angry Christians are those who do not have a right view of God. Brother or sister who struggles with anger, your struggles are with the goodness of God. Admit it, you don't believe he's good. You can claim God works everything to another for good. God, Jonah claimed all about his loving kindness. But admit it, you don't believe it and confess it. Brother or sister, when you're depressed, the world says take medication. The worldly church says take medication. It's like sitting on a tack and they're saying, have this pain reliever rather than pulling the tack out. Underlying your depression is some anger somewhere that you have not confessed and you've given Satan a place and your thinking's messed up. You need to confess it and be restored. God wants you to be restored. He loves you. We should be renewing our mind in Christ. Jonah was central in God's greatest work of salvation in mankind to this date. He called it evil because of his stinking thinking and he got angry and depressed. Brothers and sisters, we need to see the trials God allows, the discipline for our sin, everything it is as good. as from a hand of a good God. He is good. It is my prayer that you've been confronted with the goodness of God, who is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and one who relents in calamity. He's so good he would send his son Jesus to die for us, to bear the penalty for the very anger that we are playing with. It's my prayer that you'd humble yourself before him and confess. And if you're one who confesses your anger, when you get angry, you're walking with the Lord, we need to take heed. We who stand lest we fall, we could fall so easily. No temptation has come upon us except that which is common to man. We need to rely 100% on the Lord. But God is faithful. He will provide a way of escape. What about those who don't know Christ? The Lord says if you're angry in your heart, you're guilty of hell. Matthew 5.22, but I say to you, everyone who is angry, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever shall say, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go to fiery hell. But God's a compassionate God who relents concerning calamity. He will relent from sending you to hell for your sin if you trust in Christ. He's a good God, a compassionate God who gave his son for us. You need to humbly come before God and tell him that you sinned and cry out for a Savior. Then for those of us who believe, we need to be those who are absorbed in Christ. We're setting our mind on the things above, recognizing and praising him for his goodness and graciousness. Not some fake feigned praise where we're saying God is good all the time, but where we believe it in our heart and we give him the glory and we see things through the light in which he is revealed in his word and everything he is doing is
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week. Thank you.